Right on. Uh, let's, let's read, uh, starting in verse 1, Romans chapter 4, and we'll go to verse 12. It says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a, not as a gift, not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts, counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that, the right, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of, faith, of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you for this fun journey we've been having through Romans, it's so incredible, Lord, as we learn about faith and righteousness in you, Jesus, and being justified through the cross. And uh, Lord, I just ask today that your spirit would clear the clutter for us, that you'd clear the clutter in our heart, Lord, that you would uh, correct our thinking. God, I pray that as we talk about these things this morning, that, that it wouldn't just be you know, facts and information, but uh, that we would hear the power of the gospel, that we would experience the power of Jesus Christ, that we, that our church, Lord, would experience the power and the grace of this message. Lord, we can't make what we're reading about here happen, Lord. It has to be a work of your spirit. And so, Lord, would you just, in your power, make these words known to us this morning? We ask your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, yeah, so Romans, we're continuing this conversation about, about faith and uh, about being justified by faith, being made right before God by faith. Now to say that, yeah, to say that someone's justified just simply means that, that someone has been made right before God. They've been made righteous in the, in the sight of God, the sin that once you know, condemn them, has been forgiven. Uh, things have been put in their proper place. And in Romans 3, what we saw last week was this, is that the, that the Holy Spirit was declaring through the word of God this, is that, that God has assumed responsibility for our salvation. That's important for us to understand. God has assumed the responsibility of our salvation. And he sent his son, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Our, and our lives are to be committed to his glory. And the sole basis of this relationship that we have with him is totally dependent upon his grace. Upon his unmerited favor. Upon what he's done for him, for us. Our, our relationship with him is a gift. And it's, and it's not in regard to any previous worth or any previous status that we might think we that we might think that we had before God. No, we enter into this relationship with Jesus, with the Father, by placing our faith in the Son. Now we were talking about faith last week and, and defining faith. And one of the things I said to you guys is this is that faith is steadfast. Here's a definition of it. Faith is steadfast, undivided loyalty. Uh, to Jesus that leads our life to give renown or glory to God and to his name. Okay, Un undivided loyalty to Jesus, that's, that's faith. 
And in our undivided loyalty, what we are seeking to do is uh, just demonstrate our allegiance to Jesus. That's what faith is. It's like, I'm, I'm not a divided person. I serve Jesus. I've met Jesus. I follow Jesus. And John Barclay said, says this. He says that living by faith is expressed in new patterns of loyalty and behavior. And so I threw out this question to you guys last week. What are the new patterns of loyalty and behavior that you observe in your life that are expressions of your faith in Jesus Christ? We should be seeing those increasingly in our lives. And so as Paul is just illustrating this life of faith and, and talking about this, this new economy that we come to understand, he takes us to uh, the conversation towards Abraham because Abraham is the father of those who have faith. That's what the scripture tells us. He's the father of faith. Uh, and there are patterns in, the, in his life that we're to, we're to emulate. And so Paul illustrates that from Genesis chapter 15. Now Genesis 15, let me just recount it really fast for you. Here's the story of Genesis 15, okay? Uh, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision, to Abram. He's still known as Abram. And he is in the land of Canaan. God has called him there. He's already made the journey. He's left his father's household. He's left the land of the Chaldeans. He's come as God has led him to the promised land. His nephew Lot has come with him. Then as they begin to grow and be blessed, Lot and him separated. They needed more land and space for the blessing of God that was being poured out upon them. And so as you guys know, Lot went and he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And before that place was ever destroyed, there was an attack against that city and Lot and his family were taken captive. And Abraham came to their rescue. He gathered the yeah, his household, all his servants, they put together a little, you know, company of soldiers and they went and they rescued Lot and they recovered all the goods. And what happened in that process is this, is that Abraham met Melchizedek, the priest. And Melchizedek and Abraham sat down and they shared a meal together. They shared something when you read it, it sounds just like they had communion, bread and wine together. And the scripture tells us that Melchizedek, who was a, a picture, he's a, a Christophany, he's, he's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave a tenth of everything that he had to Melchizedek. Now, all that's just gone on, and this is where Abraham's at in the story. And then uh, Genesis chapter 15 tells us that the word of the Lord came to Abraham, and here's what the Lord said to him in this vision. Don't know all the details, but it was some sort of vision from the word of God. And the Lord said to him, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Now, we talked last week, we were talking about the fruit of sin, the fruit of, of death and what that brings into our life. It brings guilt, you know, brings uh, shame. One of the things we talked about is that it brings fear. That it brings fear and it's interesting here that the Lord spoke to Abraham. So there was something going on in Abraham's life where there was a deep-seated fear. And the Lord said to him, you need to, don't fear, Abram. Don't fear. I am your shield. Now, think about that. Listen, like, listen to those words. I am your shield. The Lord is saying to Abraham, Abram, you have to understand something about this relationship that you and I are entering into. I am the power that protects you. I'm the power, Abram. And, and I think that that's an important word for us in understanding this text right here. I think there's lots of us that have deep-seated fears in our lives. They, 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 they grip us. And I think in this text, if the Holy Spirit would have you know, something for you to grab onto from the word of God, it's this from the Lord. I am the power that protects you. I am your shield. I am your shield. Now, not only did God, you know, promise protection, say to Abraham, I'm your shield, the power of protection. He also gave him a promise and he said to him, your reward is going to be very great. But Abraham said this, Lord, what can you give me? Like what reward could I have because 
Right now, you know, as far as your reward is concerned, in my house, my wife and I are childless. We don't, we don't have an heir. There's a servant in my house that's living here. I love him. He's a faithful servant. But as of right now, he's my heir. I don't have a child. And the Lord said to him, this man will not be your heir. Your, your very own son, your very own son is going to be your heir. And then the Lord said to him, come outside with me. Come on outside of the tent. And Abram came out of the tent and the Lord instructed him, look toward the heavens and, and try to number the stars if you're able to. And then God said this great promise that we know that Abraham was given. So shall your offspring be. And then Genesis 15 tells us something that is so simple and it's so profound. It's at the heart of what Paul is trying to demonstrate to us. It, it, it's such a simple and profound truth that it like can totally change the axis of your entire life. Like your life should spin on this reality and we should lay hold of the same truth that Abram laid hold of. This is what Paul is telling us to do. And Genesis 15, 6 just says this, so simple. And Abraham believed the Lord. He believed. He believed. And it says that the Lord counted that as righteousness. A real simple thing. Think about it. Abraham, he's fearful. He's childless. And God said to him, I am the power that protects you and I'm going to bless you. Your reward is going to be great. You'll have an heir. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. And Abraham believed God. He believed God was his shelter. He believed God was his shield. He believed God was his protection. He believed God's promise to bless him. And the Lord just said, I count that as righteousness on your behalf. And the question for you and I is totally and exactly the same. It's like this. Will you trust the power and the promise of the cross? Will you trust the power and the promise of Jesus? That's what the cross is, right? It's like a shield. If there's something I want to take a refuge behind, it is the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed on that cross. He is the power that protects it. He's taken responsibility for this, the salvation of this poor fella. And he promises to bless. Trust in the cross of Jesus. And trusting in Jesus is just simply expressed in faith, like it was by Abraham. Remember faith? It's steadfast, undivided loyalty. Jesus, if I'm coming under the shelter of that cross, this is what you have for me. Undivided loyalty. Obedience. My love. My worship. And if you've done that, if you've come under the shelter of the cross, you know this. That, that your faith, that living by faith is expressed in, in, in new patterns of loyalty in your behavior. It changes how you live. It changes what you're loyal to. It changes how you, you know, raise your children and spend your money and changes the reality of your marriage and your friendships. And your, it changes everything. And so in Romans 3, Paul taught us that, that the righteousness God has established for us through faith, a, a right relationship with God is, is not established on the basis of following the laws of Moses, the Ten Commandments. A right relationship with God comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is the work of God. He's taken full responsibility on himself. I love that. It's a freeing thing. It's a really freeing thing. Paul, Paul ended Romans chapter 3, says, we have nothing to boast about. My only boast is Jesus. And we're saved simply when we come to that place where we can say, Jesus did it and I believe it. I put my life, I'll bet my life on it. And God counts that faith in Jesus as, as simply being enough to declare us righteous in his sight. And so as we dive into Romans 4, Paul's just going to demonstrate to us that, that being justified by faith, that being made acceptable in the sight of God by faith is, is not a new concept. Even though he, he was telling us about this new reality in chapter 3, it's like, but now, remember that? Now he's going to tell us that, that, yeah, it's new, but it's not new. Let me like tell you about another guy who experienced this reality. 
Because the fact is that God established this principle with Abram, with Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith long before Moses ever received the law. That's what he's going to tell us. So let's check out what Abraham discovered about faith. Verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? Or I like how the NIV, let me read how the NIV puts the same verse. It says this, what then shall we say that, our, that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? What did Abraham discover? I like that translation. Talking about him discovering something. To me that that's a great way of describing how you come into a relationship with Jesus. You discover it. It's like, what? Is this a reality? Did this exist all this time and I didn't, why didn't somebody tell me about this? To discover means that you, you find out about something or you find out information that was not previously known. You know, I was thinking about this. Remember, you know, we talk about Captain Vancouver coming and discovering you know, our coastline, right? And we've named our city after him. And there's got a little monument down at Chaster there. And he came and he discovered it. But we know the reality is this. He, I mean, he just discovered something that already existed. There were already people here. You know, just to some people, they didn't know that this existed. So it was, it was discovery. And so we say, Captain Vancouver discovered British Columbia, you know? But it, it was always here. He just kind of let the world in on a on a secret that he found out about. You know, I remember discovering faith in Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? Like, wow. I, I, I remember, you know, I had entered into a relationship with Jesus. I was growing. I was doing, you know, like reading my Bible and spending time with the Lord. But I remember one day in my quiet time, reading in Galatians chapter 3, I was, I was reading where Paul says, Who bewitched you? That you think you can be perfected by works. And I, I thought to myself, wow, that's really strong language, Paul. Like, why do you bewitch? you saying that there's a spell over me. And then, you know, like just this revelation from God. It's like, that's right. You've been relating to me on the wrong basis. Relate to me on the basis of faith, not your works, not your efforts, not your strivings. It wasn't that salvation by faith had not previous, previously existed. It just really wasn't very well known to me. It was a discovery. I discovered it. And when God's grace is revealed, you know, it, it, it transforms your relationship with, with God because the, the primary means by which we often relate to God is on the basis of what we do. On the basis of how we live, you know, our, our good behavior, our bad behavior. And, and the axis point changes when we discover this, that it's by faith. That I can relate to Jesus on the basis of faith. Not what, I, not what I've done, but what he's done for me. Look at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What kind of works could... Abram have boasted in. Like if you think about it, what kind of things could Abraham have boasted in? Well, I would say there's actually quite, quite a few things Abraham could have boasted in. Like, you know, he did a lot of stuff in his pursuit for God. He, he left his father's home. He left wealth and sophistication and influence and what he knew for something that was unknown because God called him to it. You know, he lived in a tent. He moved to the land of Canaan. Maybe Abraham could have boasted in this. I haven't withheld anything from you, God. I like brought my son to Mount Moriah and I was going to kill him on an altar for you until you stop. I haven't withheld anything from you. None of us have ever gone that far, have we? Never want to. Abraham withheld nothing from God really in that, in that sense. But it was none of those things or any of his other works that that God used to declare Abraham as righteous. Look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. See God declared him. He counted him as righteous. When he simply trusted him. He believed him. He put his faith in the promise of God. 
To say that God counted him as righteous is, that's, that's actually an accounting term. It's a banking term, right? Some of your translations might say he credited him. He counted him. It's accounting. It means that God put something into his account. God put a deposit into Abraham's spiritual bank account. Just like you put money in your bank account, there's a spiritual bank account and God put a deposit into Abraham's spiritual bank account and he he credited this to him. Righteousness. He just put that in there. Into the bank. Now to be counted with righteousness means that not only does God take our bankrupt spiritual condition. Remember we've seen this. Romans 2. No one's righteous. No one fears God. Paul went on and on and on. It means this. That God takes our spiritually bankrupt condition and he wipes out all of the debt. But not only does he do that. He he credits to that account uh, a positive good. You know we go from like way in the red to way in the black. It's not just like on the slight side. It's like wow I have balance. It's like no man. You have riches beyond your greatest imagination. Not only are our sins forgiven. But we're justified. We're counted as righteous. Meaning that God actually perceives me. As being right. God perceives you in Jesus as being right. As much as we talk about the nature of the heart and the the wickedness of the heart and some of the things we've seen, now in Jesus, God counts you as good. He counts you as righteous in his son. He considers us correct in his sight. You know, I wish I had like a high school teacher like that when I was like taking math classes or something like this. You know, where, you know, you write your exam and they take all of your wrong answers and they turn them into the right answers and they say, you're all good, man. You're through. We, we could all use that, right? You've never done anything. You never answered a question wrong. I've changed them all. Wouldn't that be nice? That's what we have spiritually. That's what we have in Christ Jesus. That's what God is like as we come to him in faith. Not not only does he eliminate our bankruptcy, but he credits us with righteousness and he treats us with and he looks upon us with that attitude that it's like you have never been in the position of bankruptcy before me. You're my son. Before me, you're my daughter. Before me, you are always wealthy. Look at verse four. Now Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So Paul takes just a simple example, something that we all understand from everyday life to illustrate this truth that he's trying to communicate to us. And he compares the idea of working versus receiving a gift. And at this point, you know, being credited with righteousness, if we're talking about Abraham, it, it had nothing to do with what Abraham did or didn't do. All he did was believe God. He, he believed what God said and God counted him as righteousness. Now you think about that. If I hire somebody, let's say we need some work done here around, around the church and we hire someone to do the work. They repair whatever. We do something. And when the, when the job's done, the church would be obligated to pay that person in exchange for what they've done. It's like, you know, it's like paying a worker isn't a gift. It's like, you know, don't ever let your boss treat you like, yeah, you're doing me a favor by paying me. You're not doing me a favor. I earned it. I earned it. Now give me that big fat paycheck, right? And that's, that's the idea. Pain, pain is an obligation for a, for a worker to receive his pay. And it's the nature of mankind. It's the nature of humanity. It's the nature of our flesh. This is, the reality is that, that we're always working before God, you know, we're always in this place of trying to, you know, some way work ourselves into God's favor. We're somehow going to obligate him. You're obligated to pay me because I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. But that's it. I would say this. That, that's a dangerous way to relate to God. It's not healthy to relate to him in that sense because God has set a standard of what's acceptable. We know this. He's given us a lot. Paul said, we can't leave that behind. We don't get to abandon that. 
And when our work doesn't meet his standard, then he's not obligated to do anything. In fact, you know, think about this summer I painted the house, right? I got the house painted. It was lots of work. And I was thinking, wow, it sure would have been nice to hire someone to do this job. So let's say I did, you know, let's say I hire someone, like paint my house. I want you to paint my house blue. Do the trim white. And then I go away. And this worker is supposed to be working. And then he calls me and he says, I've done the job. Uh, it's all painted. And then I show up at home. It's like one wall's blue. He's the side, the back wall's yellow. And, you know, he left the rest of the house and he didn't touch, touch the trim. Now, you know, what do you think I'm going to do with that worker? <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you think? My expectations were out of order? No. I own that house and I hired you to do a job. And you didn't do it. You didn't do what you're supposed to. And, and that's you and me. We can't live up to the standards God has set in his law. He's the owner of the house. He sets the standard of, of what he considers acceptable work. And so relating to God on the basis of works is thinking somehow I'm obligating him. He's got to pay me. And that's a dangerous thing. In fact, I, I, I think it's foolish. I don't want that in my life. I don't want that for your life. You know, think about it. Let's say you get up tomorrow morning. You're like, I'm going to spend time with God. I'm going to, an hour in the word of God. I'm going to spend two hours in prayer. I'm going to get up in the morning. And then after I've done those things, I'm going to go find someone who's needy. I'm going to take them out for breakfast. I'm going to buy their breakfast. And I'm going to do all of these things for God. And, you know, somewhere in that, as we're doing things like this, this is often the reality for us, we think, God, I've obligated you. You owe me. I've done all this for you to put you in debt to me. And really, when we enter into those attitudes, what you've done is you've nullified God. You've canceled out his grace. God doesn't owe you anything. What we've seen in Romans chapter 2, the only thing that we deserve is death, condemnation, judgment. When you're bankrupt, you have nothing. You know, I was thinking about it. If, if your bank account's bankrupt, but you have $5 in your pocket, you're like, do you have any money? Yeah, I got five bucks. You know, it doesn't really mean a lot when there's nothing in the account. The Lord examines our hearts, you know. Now, I would say this. The reality is you, we know what we deserve, and so here I would say this, in regards to that illustration, I'm not saying don't do those things. I'm not saying don't get up and spend time in the word of God. Don't, don't spend time in prayer. Don't, yes, go out and do all of those things. Look after the poor, seek justice and look after people. But the Lord is examining our hearts and if we do such things to earn his favor, then you know what you'll find? You will find yourself in this constant place of disappointment. It's like, God, you're not doing what I want, man. I'm like, you'll be frustrated. But if you do those things simply because you enjoy hanging out with Jesus and because you desire to be a part of the things that he's doing on earth or because you're excited about the reality of his kingdom and its advance or you're excited about partnering with God in his harvest work and because you're thankful for the things that he's done in your life and because you just want to be close to him. It's like, you've done all these things for me, Lord. I just want to be close to you, then do those things, I would say. Do them. But God won't be obligated. God won't be obligated. It's about grace. It's about his unmerited favor. And when your relationship with God is about his grace, appropriated to you, given to you through faith in Jesus Christ, rather than by your works, you know what happens in your relationship with Jesus? It becomes a joy in your life. It's not like, wow, I got to go to church this morning. Oh, I got to read my Bible. No, it's like, man, Jesus, I want, I want to spend time with you. I want to be with like-minded people. I, I, I want to seek you in the place of prayer. Look at verse five. He says this. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
It's interesting because the Old Testament system of salvation really was not any different than our system of salvation. Abraham looked forward in faith to what God was going to do for him. That included Jesus. Abraham was looking forward to the cross. He was looking forward to Jesus and it was counted to him as righteousness. As New Testament believers, what do we do? We look back to the cross. We, we look back in faith. Abraham looked forward in faith. And just like Abraham, we trust in the work that God has accomplished through Jesus Christ and we're counted as righteous. We trust God. He justifies us and our faith in him is counted as righteousness. Positive good in the bank account. Now Abraham's the father of the Hebrew people and so Paul grabs another example of another man, one of the greatest Hebrew men of all time, a hero, a king, and he shows that this king was also made righteous by faith. Check it out, verse six. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. David's described, you know what he's called, the man after God's own heart, right? What an awesome description. That's like, that's what we all want to be called. Want to be called the man after God's own heart. That's a pretty amazing way to be uh, described. But when we think about David, we know the reality. Let's talk about this man for a minute. I mean, he did terrible things. He like committed some terrible sins against God. We're all familiar with the lowest points in David's life, right? It's like he's supposed to be off in battle with his soldiers and he decides, ah, you know, I've done pretty good for myself. I'm going to kick it at home and I'm going to send them to do the work. And he like played the role of a peeping Tom and he inquired who this married woman was and he fetched her, brought him to his palace, committed adultery with her. When she got pregnant, Bathsheba, you know, you know the story. He, when he couldn't cover it all up, he brought her husband Uriah home and he made sure, you know, the instructions were given so that, that Uriah would die in battle. I mean, David murdered Uriah. Like, that's straight up. David, like, committed adultery and he murdered Uriah. Guilty. And when we think about, you know, the big guns in the Old Testament, like Abraham and, and Moses, David's right there. He's like a hero for us. And it's amazing that Paul quotes what David says in Psalm 32 here, uh, which is one of the Psalms in which what the underlying tone of what's going on, David's confessing his sin after he's been confronted with the Bathsheba Uriah story and all the sin that was in his life. And he writes this, this psalm and he, you know, after he's confessed his sin and, and David understood, we see here, he understood what Abraham had discovered. David discovered the same thing. That a man is not justified by his work. If David were judged on his works, he's toast. But David understood that God counts us as righteous apart from our works when we trust him. Look at what Psalm, verse 7 says. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. What? God won't count sin? Is that possible? David says two things. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. You know what the word blessed means? It's like really important that we understand this. It's like, it's a great word. It, it, it just means this, happy. Oh, actually, in Hebrew, it means this, oh, how happy. Like happiness grips the heart of this person. Oh, how happy is the man whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. I mean, what an awesome thing. To know, man, my past is taken care of. That's even like, he even knows all the stuff I don't know that, you know, the sins I'm going to commit. He knows all that and he still counted me as righteous when I put my faith in him. Do you know your sins are forgiven? That will make you happy. 
That will make you happy to know that your sins are forgiven. You know, if you don't, if you don't know that they're forgiven, you know, I want to tell you, you, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you come to him as your shelter, say, Jesus, I'm, I'm turning from that stuff and I'm, I'm, commit, I'm you know, declaring my loyalty to you. I give my life to you, Jesus. He'll forgive your sin and you'll know the happiness that David knew. It's amazing that David said, I'm happy. Like, yeah, you're a murderer and adulterer. He's like, man, the Lord cleaned that away. I'm happy. David also said this, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. I mean, you think about that. Do you know that when God forgives your sin, the scripture tells us that he removes it as far as the east is from the west. That's, a, that's pretty far. You know, if you like get on the ferry this morning and you just start making your way east and you travel across the country and then you get on a boat on the eastern shore and you travel across the Atlantic Ocean and then you go across Europe and across Asia and then you get on a boat and you cross back across the Pacific. And it's like east and west, as much as we say they meet, they never meet. As far as the compass is concerned, they never meet. And as far as the Lord is concerned, he's like that compass. I removed it. It's gone. David said, Blessed man. Blessed is the man who knows these things. In other words, you know, the Lord is not keeping a record. In Jesus, it's as though we had never sinned. God has counted us righteous. It's though I was never bankrupt. Oh, how happy is the man whose sin is forgiven and whose sin will never count against them. I mean, I just think, wow, that's pretty cool. Like, Jesus is pretty awesome when I think about that. I, and, and the reality is, is, in my life, I don't know anything like Jesus. Like, Jesus makes me happy. He makes me happy. And, you know, I think about so many people, they think, they think following Jesus, being a Christian, it's like, oh, it's a burden. Oh, man, you're religious. Oh, you have to do this. Oh, you have to do that. What a downer. What a burden. And, and they just reduce faith in Jesus to religion. And you know what? If you reduce it to that, then it is a downer. It's like, who's kidding who? It's gorgeous out there. Go do something else today. Right? But following Jesus is not like that. His work in your life is supposed to make you happy. We should be happy people. We should be full of joy. And if happiness is missing, then something is out of order, man. Maybe we're like, maybe we're doing the work. Maybe we've slid into the works thing if the happiness isn't there. Maybe law has crept in if there isn't joy. You should just check the account. Go, oh, I'm such an idiot. I went back, Lord, to that works thing. God, I trust you. You are my shield. I'm trusting you to bless me. I, I confess my loyalty to you, Jesus. You know, it's interesting that, that in our culture, we work, we work so that we can what? Retire, man. We work so that one day we don't have to work. Like that's the whole concept of, you know, living in our country, right? And in our thinking, we do this. We say, man, I'm going to be happy when I don't have to work. You know, I'll just do what I want. I like live where I want. I like get in my car when I want. I'll go where I want. I like spend my money. I won't have to work and that will be like happiness. And that's a great picture of what it's supposed to be like for G with Jesus for us. It's like, that's right. You don't have to work. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy your relationship uh, with Jesus. That's a spiritual lesson. The man or woman who is happy is the man or woman who is not working in regards to their salvation. Right, Jerry? Can I hear an amen? Spiritually, God wants you to apply that principle to your life. Happy is the one who's not working, but they're trusting. Happy is the one who's not working, but they're simply believing in the goodness and the love of God that has been revealed through the cross of Jesus Christ. The righteous live by faith. And God counts them righteous. 
apart from works. And happy is that person. You know, when David was confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan, confronted with, you know, committing adultery and and murder, David repented. He believed in God's work. God forgave him. God wiped the slate clean. And it's though it's as though he never sinned. Oh, how happy David was. That's why he wrote Psalm 32. It's a psalm of happiness. And you know, when you think about sin, you think about what David did. Sin is very humbling, isn't it? It's like, man, it's, it's, uh, it causes us to realize, you know, man, I'm not righteous. Unless Jesus does it, unless God shields me. You know, I imagine David at one time thought, yeah, I'm righteous, man. I'm like, I can kick it here because I'm like sending my guys out and God's blessed me and this and that. And, and as we've been seeing here, the, the law is a schoolmaster. It showed him his, the straight law showed him that he's crooked. You're not as righteous as you think you are, David. And so Abraham and David are both examples of this truth that God counts us as righteous when we believe him and we just simply put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now remember, this is like this church in Rome. There's this Jewish Gentile thing going on, right? And Paul's using examples of Hebrew Jewish heroes of the faith, Abraham and David. And so the obvious question for the Gentile in the church is this, well, how does it work for the Gentile then? And so look at verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that, the faith, that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So if God counts us as, as righteous, he credits like he did to Abraham, counts us as righteous because of faith, then where does the question for the, for the Jew and the Gentile at that time is well, where does this whole circum- practice of circumcision come in then? Where does it come into the equation? Remember the Jews? God's chosen people. The practice of circumcision defined them as God's chosen people. It marked them as different from the world around them. It was a sign of their covenant relationship with God. And really like, circumcision for the Hebrew people was more than just some social or cultural practice. This marked them as God's people. It's like, this defines us. We are covenant people with God. Define the Jews as as different. It, It marked their lives as saying, we live under the law of Moses. And what Paul is pointing out to us is that Abraham was counted righteous in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 when he believed God and he didn't receive the covenant of circumcision until Genesis 17. 14 years are in there between Genesis 15 and 17. Therefore his righteousness wasn't based on the covenant of circumcision, it was based on his faith in God. He believed God. Faith came first and then circumcision. And for that matter, you know, if you think about it, when God counted him, when God counted Abraham as righteous, he was an uncircumcised Gentile. At that point, there were no Hebrew people. And God counted him as righteous. I just love, it was making me think of 2 Corinthians 5.17, just a great verse. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, behold, the new has come. Behold. That's, that's righteousness by faith. Behold, the new has come. Again, of Abraham, Paul tells us, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So Paul tells us, why was circumcision given? It was both a sign and a seal. A sign, as a sign, it was evidence that that Abraham believed to God 
belong to God, that his descendants belong to God and they believed in God's promise. But it was also a seal. It was a reminder that God had given him a promise and God would keep the promise. Your reward is going to be very great. I'm going to remove the nature of the flesh from your life. Now as New Testament believers, followers of Jesus, we've received a seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit. We've received the seal of the Holy Spirit and we've undergone, like you think about it, we've undergone a circumcision of the heart. That's what the scripture tells us. That God is removing the flesh off this heart and he is bringing forth the work of the Holy Spirit who is the seal of my relationship with Jesus. The old nature of the flesh has been removed because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And when you talk about Abraham and circumcision, circumcision didn't add to Abraham's faith. It, it just merely attested to it. It demonstrated it. And that's, for, that's like you and I. Well, no, the works. The works merely attest to the reality that Jesus makes me happy, that my sins are forgiven, that I'm loyal to him. You know what the book of Romans is really trying to clearly communicate to us is that, is this really freeing truth. You don't have to twist God's arm. You don't have to twist his arm. You know, quit trying to make God bless you. You know, you, you can't make him do anything. You know, don't you, don't you? It's like, you ever hear that statement, hurting cats? Don't you? You know, it's like, come oh, on, man, do this for me. It's like, no, you can't make me do anything. That's the Lord, okay? You can't make me do anything. What I do, I'll do out of my own goodness and you won't deserve it. And I'll bless you and it'll rock your socks, man. Trying to make God do something will leave you frustrated and it will leave you disappointed. It will leave you mad at people, and mad at the church and mad at you know, your family and mad at Christians and disappointed in that and disappointed with this. You, know, you think about it. It's pretty hard to take it further than circumcision. Right, dudes? Like, you think about that. It's like, let's be honest. What more can a man do than, than take a knife to that part of his body? That's right. Laugh it up, ladies. But here's, here's the reality. Here's the reality, the concept. Trust in this fact. The cross. God is good. All the time, God is good. And I just want to encourage you as we go through, as we wrap up this text here, enjoy God. Enjoy your relationship with God. Enjoy God like you enjoy the best things in life. Enjoy your relationship with Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead to show you compassion. He loves you. He is seeking to remove fear and shame and guilt from your life. You can enjoy him. Just the way you are. You know, think about it. What, what can you do? You, you cannot, isn't just a great truth. You can't make God love you any more than he already does. You can't make him do any more than he's already done. All you have to do is just enter into it. By faith. You want to know one of the most amazing things about following Jesus? You, you, you know one of the, like when Jesus pours out the greatest blessing in your life, when, he, when God just begins to move the best in your life, the sweetest way, when people just stop striving. It's like, I'm just going to stop trying to obligate you and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to just say, you're my shield. Pour out your blessing, God. Pour out your blessing. When we stop striving and trying to earn and we just watch and we just rest and we pour out his goodness. Abraham, I'll look after this whole childless thing. Don't worry. I got it. Look at the stars, man. That will be your descendants. And Abraham believed God. And, and you know the rest of the story. We're counted in there. Just enjoy him. Trust him. And he'll pour out his blessing. I, I remember a number of years ago just... I was wrapping up. I went down to one of the pastor's conferences 
in California. Pastor Chuck was still kicking around and um, they did a live radio show in front of us and down there they have this show called Pastor's Perspective. It's actually really good. If you haven't, you could check it out. It's on a radio station called K-Web. And pe- people call in and they just ask questions, biblical questions, moral questions, whatever. And, uh, and so they're recording this thing live in front of us and they were taking questions from, from the pastors and Chuck, Chuck was getting old. He, it was two, I think it was, it was before, a couple years before he passed away. So he passed away in 2013. And so they wrap up and the last question is this. They're like, someone asks like, what's your vision for the future of our movement? Like, what's your vision, Chuck, for Calvary Chapel? And, and Chuck, answer was like so awesome I'll never forget it he's like this he's like why would I limit God by stating my vision for Calvary Chapel I thought whoa man that's a man who understands what it is to be shielded in the Lord and to say God I trust your blessing I trust you I trust what you're going to do I, I trust that you're, you're going to like richly pour out. Why, why would I limit you? You know, and I think just so often as believers, we limit God, man. We just limit him. We just put the boundaries around him. So you, we pray and we say, it's going to look like this. It's like, I declare my trust in you. You are my shield. What else do I have to worry about? Look at verse 12. Last verse. Speaking of Abraham, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What's Paul saying? He's saying this. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, that does not matter. What matters is this, that like Abraham, you walk in these footsteps of faith, of the faith. What matters is that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do, bankruptcy to riches. God counts you as righteous. It's as though you never sin. And like David, you'll say, oh man, I'm so happy. I'm so blessed. Fear not. You know, if I could leave you with this application, here's the application. Fear not. Fear not. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Friends, your shield is the cross. That's your shield the blood of Jesus. Your reward will be very great. Has Jesus not said that? Don't go, Jesus. No, I have to go because I'm going to go and I'm going to send the Spirit and while he's here, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Your reward in me is very great. Like Abraham, we just kind of have to step outside of our little tent sometimes and lift our eyes up to the stars and see what God is doing. Amen.